So one of the awesome um, things that we do here at Summit is we have a teaching team. We have several of us that take turns teaching. Um, and so each week we have a different kind of person that's around. And one of the things that is developed in the midst of that is we actually have a teach team. So on Wednesdays, we preview our sermons with a trusted group of friends that we pray for each other. We're able to listen for to each other and we're able to give really helpful insight into it. And it's one of those things, I, I now that I've done it for a couple of years with this group of folks, I don't know how people do it without it. They have a team of people that are kind of by your side that are for you and that are helping you get better. And so I went in this week and I had this really great, funny story about our Africa trip. We've got some of our team here this morning and they're all laughing. I'm like, yes, I've won them over. And at the end, they're like, hey, maybe you should just talk about your anger. I'm like, oh, thanks. That sounds awesome. They're like, you have three days. That's probably plenty of time. I'm like, I'm not that angry of a person, guys. Come on. But they're right. I um, had plenty of stories because anger is just a normal, common, everyday thing. It's something that's wired up in every one of us. So I paid attention for the last couple of days and I thought, here are some places where anger showed up in my life. Um, sometimes um, it just happens with inanimate objects. A bookcase broke last night. We were trying to move it three inches. I don't know why it needed to be moved three inches. That's not important. Um, it was not my decision. Um, but it broke in the midst of it, which was in the middle of the football game, which is not the best time for it to break. So I had to get the nail gun out and fix it. It's like, why is there such injustice with the bookcase? Um, sometimes it happens when you know someone cuts you off in traffic, right? Oh, the injustice of someone coming next to me and just getting so angry at someone I'm never going to see again. And it's just like, it just makes no sense. Sometimes anger is really justified, right? My kids, I was with them just a couple days ago. They were out riding their bikes and there was a car pulling in the driveway and we have been working on this like crazy, like you've got to watch the driveway. And they didn't and I just yelled full on dad voice, stop. I mean, they're like crying because they're like, what's wrong? I'm like, you're about to get hit by a car. So sometimes anger can help just get everything in control because they needed to stop as that car was pulling in. We talked about it and the anger led to a place where we could have a discussion like daddy was scared and in the midst of this. Sometimes um, anger, it, it can happen between people, right? And this is probably the one that we see most often. Rachel and I, uh, we, we were talking about it in the midst of it. It was Friday morning. We had this incredibly pr great productive morning. We got so much done. And somehow we broke out in this argument and we're angry. And uh, at about two minutes into it, we're like, why are we angry? We had a great morning. It's like, there's no reason. We don't even know what to say sorry for. So let's just move on. But anger is just also, like I've noticed, it is wired so early on in life. Maverick is three years old, boy, and his go-to emotion is anger. I don't like you, which if I had, didn't have such thick skin, might really hurt my feelings. I mostly laugh when he's not looking. Um, but like his go-to emotion whenever he gets in trouble, whenever he's caught, is he gets angry and then he does what he's supposed to do. But anger is part of all of it. It is a human emotion that is in all of us, it is something that is there. And we also now, I think we could agree that we live in a, an angry time. Like anger is kind of there beneath the surface of so much of our life and our surroundings and what we see on TV and online and it is sit, sitting there. Uh, you don't know what is gonna flip someone's switch, whether it's a comment, whether it's an incident on the road. Uh, we kind of live in this time where we're worried about anger and other people's anger and our own. And again, it's a core emotion. If you've seen the movie Inside Out, which I finally did, it took me a while, but I finally um, anger is one of the you know they, one of the ones they feature on there because it is such a core part of who you are. And, and Jim Keller, who's one of our teachers, he was here last week. He's a counselor in town, and he said something one time that I thought was so helpful. He said that anger is a transitional emotion and not a destination emotion. It's a transitional emotion and not a destination. It is emotion that is helpful to get us to the next place. Again, like when the kids were there, anger was something that was helpful in the moment to be able to get the voice loud, to be able to transition them, to stop, to be able to talk to them about what's going on. It can be helpful for us to recognize what's going on. Even Maverick, I started talking to him about like, okay, when you're feeling this, buddy, can you tell me what you're actually feeling? And it's moderately successful. But, um, but when it becomes a destination, 
when anger just leads us into more anger and to stewing it and the sitting it is when anger becomes very unhelpful, when it becomes the thing that can drive us, the thing that can sit there for us so long. So my question as we jump into this today is how are you doing with that? What are you doing with your anger? And how are you treating those that are around you that provoke that anger? Are you living in such a way that people would know that there's something different about you as a follower of Jesus? And again, this is not a surprise to God that this is something that we struggle with. He wired us up. He's known us from the beginning of time. He knows exactly how we're going to be. He knows our inmost being. And he knows that this is an emotion that every single one of us are going to experience. And it's an opportunity that each and every one of us have almost daily to respond to people that he cares deeply about. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're taking a look at this sermon that Jesus gave. It's his longest sermon as he's sitting there with his disciples and a group of people. He's kind of on a mountainside and he's teaching these folks what it looks like, this new kingdom that he's bringing in, this new ideal, this new hope, this new dream that he has for what his people, his followers will look like. And by proxy, his kingdom that he is setting up, his kingdom is not going to be this kingdom where there's a ruler. Some say there, but it is a kingdom built on this new ideal and this new ethic. And so he's sitting there and teaching them. It is a reminder to go back. It's helpful to remember this is one sermon. This is a fairly short sermon. It's a few minutes in their life that we're spending several weeks on, but they heard it all at one time. And so earlier, just a few minutes before this part where we get today, they had heard the Beatitudes, blessed are you, blessed are you. In the beginning, they were reminded that Blessed are you who have a right view of yourself within God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those of you who recognize that you can't do this on your own, that you need God to be with you. And if you sit there and you understand the need for grace, that you're in great shape. And he continues on in the second part of blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who care for others after we understand our need for grace and who we are in God. We can care for those. And blessed are those who care deeply for other people. We then talked about he declared that his followers are salt and light, that they're different and hopeful so that others can see God, that they've been set apart to be different and hopeful and a light and a beacon to the world. And then last week, Kaylee was here and she reminded us that he then comes as a fulfillment of the law that Jesus says, I am the fulfillment, the fullness of this law that's here and I've come, that you've been living under this new expression of the law that you know. And then he points towards his commands. He moves into the section now of how do you then live this out if you understand who you are You understand that you're supposed to care for people. Now, how do you actually go out and live this way? We see in the midst, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, that he points out that he loves us exactly where we are, that there is grace in the middle of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you if you understand who you are. But then he also loves us too much to leave us where we are as well. He starts pointing to being able to actually live this out through grace. We see that this is a grace-driven effort and not a human effort or trying to earn our will. Because if we just try to do these commands without God, without his hope, it's just religiosity. It's just rule following. It is, it is dead in its tracks. But if we understand the grace and the love and the deep hope that God has for us, and then we try to live this out through that hope and through that power, something different can happen. And so today we come to Jesus' first set of commands in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to do them a little bit out of order so they kind of hang together thematically. Today we're going to be talking about anger and enemies, and we'll jump back in to the other section in just a couple of weeks. And as a note, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're still here and you're checking things out and you're considering him, a couple of things that I would tell you. One is you're not beholden to these. Uh, these commands and these hopes are for followers of him. And these are things that he expects of those who follow him. 
So one, um, if you did do them, they would probably show uh, to be helpful for you. Even if you weren't yet a follower of him, if you were to follow these commands, you would see probably a helpful part in your life, but you're not beholden to it. Amber Alert, um, love iPhones, isn't the best? And um, the other thing I would say, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that you should expect this from other followers of Jesus. These should be marks of what you see in people who call themselves followers of Jesus. So today we're gonna be joining in on the Sermon on the Mount. We're gonna be in chapter five, uh, starting in verse 21. It's in your bulletins. You can follow along your Bible. We're gonna start here with 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. We're going to see a pattern here. Uh, Jesus is going to point out the old law that they've been living under. He's going to say, here, you have heard it said but then I'm gonna tell you, and he deepens the original law. So here we start with murder, and he says, but I tell you that even anger is a huge deal. He's gonna point out these things and deepen them to the point that we understand that we have to go back to him for any of it to make sense. We have to go back to his grace, which will then drive us forward in the motion. This is the pattern we're gonna be looking at over these next couple of weeks, a depthening of the law that drives us back to understanding that we fail on an almost momentary basis that then allows us to continue to try through his grace. So again, he starts with murder, and now he moves to anger, this everyday thing, um, this thing that we all deal with. And, and, and again, I don't find myself, or at least I can, don't consider myself to be an angry person, but in three days, I had two pages of notes that I could have used. I only gave you five. Um, because it is just such a normal part of what we do. And in here, there seems to be a role since he's talking about that prolonged anger. Again, it's helpful as a transition. He's not talking about that momentary anger. He's talking about this prolonged anger when we sit in our anger with one another. As I was studying this, I found this English proverb that I thought was so helpful. It says, he is a fool who cannot be angry, but he is wise who will not remain so. So this command kicks off at the beginning of anger. What do we do with it? Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says it really well. It says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not make room for the devil. Again, this is something we experience every day. We get angry, so what do we do with it? Is it leading us somewhere as a transition or is it our destination where we're stopping? Jesus' command will call us almost daily to conversion if we listen to it. For we meet several difficult people in bad situations almost every day. It's an invitation by Jesus in the most practical of ways because every angry incident is a fresh call to conversion, a fresh opportunity to look back to him the commands that he gives constantly call us to himself who gives them. The Beatitudes then are there to comfort us. Blessed are those who sit under me. But his commands are always there to then challenge us in our complacencies. So this first test that we find in the midst of this is of Christians and their relations to other Christians. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject. The chief missionary fact is Christians getting along well and forgiving each other. So I'm gonna ask this question a few times today. How are you doing with that? Are you carrying anger maybe with the person sitting next to you this morning? Did you get in a fight on the way to church? Doesn't that seem like when it always happens, like on the drive-in? Uh, it's the best part about me and Rachel coming in separate cars these days. Um, <laughs> but it always seems to stir something up, doesn't it? I think there is something very real about when we come to worship, we're stirred up. 
because it is not normal. And, it, and there is an enemy that doesn't want us to be together. I'll be honest, there is a part, he would love nothing more than for us to get, stay away from each other. And so it stirs things up. So Jesus paints a new picture of anger and expands the depths of its seriousness. And if we're really listening and looking internally inside of ourselves, we should have a strong reaction to that when he asks us how we're doing with our anger, which should send us back to him. It shouldn't send us into a place of guilt and shame. The ideal reaction as we are confronted with this is to drive us back to him for grace and forgiveness and reminder of our poverty of spirit. But then you remember the pattern as he's given us this new definition that drives us back to him. He then also gives us a step of obedience, what it can look like to experientially live this out. I love how Kaylee said that last week. She was talking about the fulfillment of the law. The fulfillment is living it experientially as we actually go out and do it. And so he follows that up as he deepens that command with how do we live this out? Verses 23, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them then come and offer your gift. Every command of Jesus first humbles in the list. It first sends us down and back up. It's important to know that when we do break these commandments, which we do almost constantly as we try to live them out, we'll be sent back to the first part of the Beatitudes, the grace. But there also is very important to know that we can keep his command, at least retroactively, by immediately seeking reconciliation with those who have hurt us or whom we have hurt, and so be introduced to the second part of these Beatitudes, the peacemaking. Blessed are those who are merciful. Jesus is not content with just showing up and putting us down and sending us down. He wants to bring us back up, and he concludes by teaching us how to do that. The illustration Jesus uses right here is of people going to worship. And I don't believe that that is accidental at all. For one of the major purposes of worship, one of the main reasons we gather together week after week and do this together is to remind us of relationships. The German theologian J.A. Bengel said, in the performance of a sacred rite, the remembrance of offenses arises more naturally than in the noise of human affairs. For at worship, when we're here, we are at the center. And at center, we are reminded of circumference, those relationships around us. In order to both worship God and to be sensitive and new to people, we then return to where we first began. There is this idea that when we are here together, we will be reminded of those we love and care about. It could be those we're sitting next to, our spouses, our kids. It could be those we work with. It could be those that are at home. But we're reminded of our relationships. And oftentimes, we're reminded of the brokenness that is in those relationships. And that is on purpose. I believe that is one of the chief purposes when we come together to worship is we focus our attentions and our affections on God. We're reminded of those around us because God cares deeply about them. And we're reminded oftentimes of the wrongs we have there. And so we come reminded of that to go and then reconcile. It should then drive us back to him who gives us the energy and strength to do that. One of the tangible ways that we get to do that together is through the taking of the communion meal. It's part of the reason we're doing communion each and every week during the Sermon on the Mount because the meal reminds us that Jesus will always meet us where we are, but then he gives us strength and the ability through his grace to then go and do things different, to go and reconcile. So as we come to the table, even today, we might be reminded of this brokenness that's in our relationships that we need to deal with, and he'll invite us to the table and say, yes, I love you, I love you right now, and I meet you here, and I forgive you, but then go. Go and make reconciliation. It is so important. Continues on in verse 25 and 26. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. 
do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Beginning, he talks about our relationship with one another in the church as followers of Jesus. And then he expands it again to those who are outside. And there seems to be a real sense of urgency in this. He says, go quickly to them. There is a sense to do this quickly. And there seems to be a warning implied in here as well. If we don't quickly seek out that other person, the accuser, we are going to pay lengthily. When personal relations go wrong, in nine cases out of 10, immediate action will mend them. The sorry, the going directly to them, talking to them directly and meeting them, apologizing, trying to figure out what is going on. And I think that we know that. I think we see that as we live that out, but it is not easy. It is not easy to do that with others because they know us too and we are wired up and it can cause conflict and all of these things. But it's important. It's so important. One of the places where I see this reconciliation happen a lot at our time in a place where I think it happens quite naturally in a lot of families is with our children um, at bedtime or in those times of quiet and times where there's mutual submission of being able to apologize to one another, like Ephesians 4.26 says, to not let the sun go down on our anger. Um, and I have seen this with our kids. It's something that um, I had heard early on and, and have tried to practice of apologizing to the kids when things have gone wrong, and it is not easy. To humble yourself to an eight-year-old is not the easiest thing in life, but it works. Um, the other day, just again, within the last three days, thanks guys, um, uh, uh, I have this tendency when things go wrong, when I hear squeals or cries to just punish everybody immediately. I just blow up, everybody go to your room. And they're trying to explain what's wrong and like, I don't have time to hear it, just go to your rooms and we'll sort it out later, right? It just needs the squealing to stop and we need it all to end. And this happened, I was sitting there doing something on the computer, the girls were behind me. All of a sudden I hear Andy crying and I see AJ and I hear that somebody got kicked in the face and I'm like, just go, right? Well, it turns out it was a complete accident. AJ was just playing and she was trying to apologize but I didn't have time to listen to it. And AJ's upset because I've gotten mad at her and as we sort it all out and have time, I went to AJ and I apologize. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I was wrong in that. And what's amazing when I've done that is how quickly she is to say, it's okay. I forgive you. They actually say the words, I forgive you, to her dad who's messed up, to her dad who's blown up. Um, reconciliation works. And it can work in our marriages. It can work in our interpersonal relationships. It can work at work. It's just, it's hard because it requires humbling ourselves. It requires immediate action. It requires us to do something. And then as he moves in here, there seems to be a real sense that if love for the other person will not move us, maybe fear will because both are loving if they seek to save us from judgment and from others being hurt. There seems to be a real sense that the quality of our relation with other peoples is the measure of our fidelity to the worship of God. As he talks about if we are followers of him, how we treat one another is an indicator of how we're doing and following him. You see, people are so important to Jesus and his kingdom, and he takes our relationships with each other so seriously and how we treat one another so seriously. So Jesus continues his next commands beyond our, just our interpersonal relationships and when we are angry with others to when we are wronged by someone else. Again, a very common experience in our lives. We're gonna pick up here in chapter five, verse 38 through 42. He says, you have heard, again, the pattern. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And then if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. 
Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Here we see four offenses that happen quite often in our life. The first, the slap across the face. This is an insult and we are insulted on a daily basis, whether that's in person, whether that's online, our character, our judgment, our being is often insulted by other people, by angry people. The second offense that we see is a challenge for our possessions or in litigation when he is threatened to be sued for his coat. This is something, again, we hold tightly to our things and we are often challenged in those things as well. The third is one that we experience quite often as well, exploitation, someone in power using their power against us and asking them to go and carry their things a mile. And the fourth offense was being taken advantage of when the person is asking for a loan, just plain being taken advantage of by another person, which happens to us all too often. And we see the early church taking these commands quite seriously in Romans as Paul is talking to the church in Rome. We see them take this passage and put it in their own words in chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the early church took it quite seriously to love one another, to do this in actual action, to not just put a lip service to this command, but to actually try it out. As he talks about this in the beginning here in 38, he talks about, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, which is always one of those harsh ones to read sometimes, right? That idea of that justice. But when this was written, this command, this law that was given in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, was actually quite a civilized law of justice because when it was first given, it could be a, a whole family for an eye, a murder for an eye, the, the unchecked revenge that was common in those days. So an eye for an eye was actually a very civilized piece of the justice that God gave his people as a way to represent that they were following him, a way to live with one another. But then Jesus takes it and deepens it again. And he says, here's what I say to you, do not resist an evil person. As I've been studying this, that one has always confused me, right? That, I feel like that one if you read that in such a way, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person, it can make it sound like we're supposed to let ourselves get walked all over or to let things happen. And it is, I have read that, and it seems like some of the really good folks who have translated it, there's more of a sense that the idea is do not repay evil with evil. Do not try to get even or pay back. Or as Romans, as they lived it out, said, do not repay wrong with a wrong. Do not take revenge. Because again, God knows how we're wired and he knows how we respond. And our immediate reaction to ill treatment is to get even. We wanna fix it in the moment. We wanna get even with those who have wronged us. But Jesus, being Jesus, and his counsel says, don't. Be more creative than that. Surprise them. And I have loved hearing that word as I read through this, surprise them. Jesus is surprising. And that is one of the reasons we've spent this year with him, because we believe that if you really get to know Jesus, you will be surprised by him. You will be surprised by his deep love for you, his deep love for people, the surprising way that he carries himself, the surprising way that God came to the world. Every bit of Jesus is surprising, and as he's setting up this new kingdom, as he is giving these instructions to his people, he says, be like me, be surprising. 
in, in short, be a Christian, be one who is a follower of me. And Jesus honors us quite deeply by thinking that we can. Jesus does not explicitly promise that our obedience will be effective in changing, reconciling, or converting the enemy or the one who's wronged us because dispensing justice isn't our job. It's God's. So who do you trust? Do you trust the God of the universe to set things right? Or do you trust your feelings and your gut in the middle of a tense situation? You see, all four of these confrontations are exactly that. They're confrontations and they're not passive. They're quite active. You don't see people just laying down and, and being walked over. They're quite active in the way that they challenge what is going on. They confront the evil with a surprising response. And there seems to be a real sense that Jesus is saying that disciples will render justice in a surprising way by a frequent suspension of justice and by a rendering of grace. Our peacemaking command is the command to be a surprising person. But disciples obey for just one reason, because Jesus is a Lord. There isn't a promise that this will help the other person, just that it's what we're supposed to do. But we're called to be surprising. So what surprises the other person in these situations? The turning of the cheek in the midst of the slap, to be slapped on the other side. That the disciple who is challenged for his clothes would rather go without clothes than fight for them in court that the person would carry something an extra mile after being forced to do the first mile. So what does that look like these days? How does that play out in our world? And I will tell you, I have been trying to think about that and I have not had much success because I don't see this and I don't live this all that often. It is a hard command to be surprising, but I think it's something that if we try and if we pray and if we go back to God, it's something that we can do because there is a real sense that a follower of Jesus would be so concerned to do his mission in the world that insults would be taken as invitations to creative mission and threats of lawsuits as opportunity to prove oneself a follower of Jesus. It might be in the way that we react when we're online. It may be the way when we have been dispensed injustice at the store. I don't know what it is, but there are times that we have an opportunity to turn back to him and act in a surprising way for him. These commands are given to us personally in this section. Uh, this is not about seeing the injustices done to others. There are times when we need to stand up for those who are wrong, and that is absolutely the right thing to do. There are those of you who have been placed in places of power and responsibility for other peoples, and you absolutely should stand up for their rights and fight for them. But there is a sense here that disciples are challenged personally to take this on as a way of living for him. He is talking to me and he's talking to you individually when you're confronted by this, how will you respond? Because it's not possible to live this way naturally. It's clear that the only way to live this is supernaturally. I find it very interesting going through these commands that the usual tests of discipleship occur in daily and thus seemingly unheroic situations. It's oftentimes easy to be heroic when the odds are stacked against us and when it is these huge moments. But to do this in our daily life, these are just things that happen in our anger and things that happen to us in our daily life, and the tests happen in these daily, seemingly unheroic situations. I know many of us are visual learners. We learn through story, and story is powerful. And I think we see here that four pictures of real followers of Jesus in the new kingdom, of the way they were surprised the person when they were confronted. Only when persons know themselves justified before God will they be willing to be treated unjustifiably by people. Therefore, disciples will live as much in the first half of the Beatitudes 
of being justified, of being forgiven, as they will in these sanctifying commands. The commands drive us back to the first Beatitudes because in our attempts to obey these commands, we will feel very poor in spirit indeed. But it will also drive us forward to the fifth Beatitude to have a heart as well as the seventh to be a peacemaker and to make peace and therefore drive us to do these again. He continues on in verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, Christian community is to love for enemies while at the same time being salt and staying near to Jesus and together as the church. It is very important for us to gather around what is important, that we cling to Jesus, that we know who he is and that we stay so true to that, but also that our love will be rendered in surprising and gracious ways. Hans Frey, another theologian, said, generosity without orthodoxy is nothing, but orthodoxy without generosity is worse than nothing. We have to be clear that we are a community of followers of Jesus. That is our identity. We line up with him and we cling to the cross, but we express our following of him by loving even our enemies. It's surprising. And he gives us a first step in that, to pray that we ought to do what our enemies cannot and cannot do for themselves, the things that they do not and cannot do for themselves. And this is lived out in communal prayer. In this passage, we're seeing this is given to the church as followers of him to gather together to pray for those that are outside, to pray for those even our enemies. And for the first time, we see a motive to the commands that Jesus has given us. Up until now, he has just told us to do them, that we'll be surprising followers of him. But then in verse 45, it says, if you do this, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If we live in this countercultural way, we will come to experience God the Father in an especially intimate way, that we will be close sons and daughters of him. It's like the seventh beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I find it interesting that God is not calling us to do something that he isn't already. It says that he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I found this quote that I felt like summed this all up really well. God's maturity is so great that God himself in his world, that God gives himself in his world as generously to the bad as he does to the good. God's family is asked to be no less fair, no less magnanimous, no less expansive, or as Jesus will put it in a moment, no less mature. In God's single greatest act of self-disclosure ever, greater even than his continuous acts of creation, God loved his enemy world so much that he gave it his own son. God at the cross teaches us supremely that he is the greatest enemy lover of all time. What makes Christians salty, different, and useful in the meat of the world is they're breaking the world's code of love for love, good for good, evil for evil, reciprocity. It is Christians' countergrain, countercultural love for the undeserving, the unloving, 
and even the positively hostile that makes them recognizably Christian. This contrariness, this nonconformity is the only true revolutionary and subverting activity in the world. All else by name of revolution is, in the literal sense, reaction that is acting back to others what has been acted out toward oneself. Christians are to be the world's counter-reactionaries. So how are you doing with this? I've told you that as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, that it is going to challenge us to our core. It is going to be uncomfortable. There will be times you might actually want to squirm in your seat, and that's okay. This is real life, and God knows how we're wired. So how are you doing with it? The next time someone angers you, the next time they challenge you, the next time someone becomes your enemy, are you going to settle the score? Are you going to figure it out on your own in exact revenge? Or will you be surprising? Will you be salt and light? And will your opponent notice a difference? And will it matter? I think it matters a great deal to God. Because he says if, if we do this, that we will be close sons and daughters of him, that we will be children of our Father in heaven. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. There is something special about those who go out of their way for others. There is a reward and there is nearness. If you're looking for a practical next step, of how can I be a peacemaker? How can I be a surprising person that, that runs counter to the ways of the world? Uh, we're starting a class in just a couple of weeks. Gary Wright, hi Gary, um, is teaching a class on peacemaking. It's on conflict resolution. This is one of those day-to-day, everyday things that happens, and it is a very, very practical way to learn how to be a surprising follower of Jesus. It's going to start September 9th. It's four weeks. It's an hour a week. It's going to happen back in the meeting space. It's going to happen during the 11 o'clock service. And if this is something that stirs up anything in you, I would encourage you to do that. Um, it would be amazing to have a group of people that are living this out and to be able to tell us how it's going. Come to the nine, go there. If you can only choose a service, take four weeks and go there. I think it will transform your life learning how to do that well. Because if we can do that again individually, if we learn how to do this and we start doing it together, the church has this opportunity to reflect something different to the world, light to the world, to be salt and light. And one of the ways we get to do that is by being surprising. Let's pray. God, you are a God who loves us so much and you know exactly who we are. You know how we're wired. You created us and you love us right where we are. But you also love us too much to leave us there, Lord. And you give us hope and you give us strength and ability to do surprising things. And all of this is for the sake of others. You care so deeply for your people that you have instructed your followers to love them well, to pray even for her enemies, to be surprising in the midst of conflict, to reflect you to the world so that they might know you. God, I pray that we would take that opportunity personally as a community to do that, God, that we would be uncomfortable oftentimes during the Sermon on the Mount as we're confronted with your hope or as we're uh, confronted with the deep picture of what it looks like to follow you and that we would know that we will not always get it right. And that as we try to do it, we will fail. But God, that I pray that that failure will not drive us to guilt and to shame, but that it would drive us back to you that would bring us back to the cross and back to grace and back to hope and back to the, the life that you offer us so that we can try again. Now that we wouldn't try to do this on our own, that we wouldn't white knuckle through it, but Lord, that you would give us effort that is driven by your grace to care for people so that we would be able to be your salt and light in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.